Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And we recently spent a weekend at Salt Lake Comic Con Fanex, and we sat on some panels, and we had a live Stuff You Missed in History Class show. We sure did. This particular show has been requested a number of times, often at Halloween time, but we did it uh, as a live show at a science fiction and fantasy pop culture kind of convention instead. Plus, every day is every day is Halloween in my book. So. That's true. Uh, it's also been on Holly's wish list for a while. So we dived into the odd, sad, fascinating life of H.P. Lovecraft. Yep, and this one ran a little bit long. I was actually worried that we would run over our panel time and not get to finish, but we managed. Uh, so we'll hop right into it and uh, let the listeners that were not at Fanex get to hear it. Great. Hi. You guys are awesome. Thank you for being here. Yes. Oh, I should. I want to take your picture, but the... Um, There's a lot of light. That glary light, it's not going to do. So... Sure. Yeah, yeah totally fine. That's uh, great. Okay, so we're going to give you a warning up front. Two, in fact. One, if you love Lovecraft, which I'm presuming a lot of you do, we're not going to talk a lot about his writing because his life is fascinating and weird. Um, and you'll kind of, I don't know how, many, how much of any of you know about his life story and his biography, but if you start looking at that, it really becomes apparent where his writing comes from. Uh-huh. So we're focusing on his life because that's the thing. Uh, second... I wrote this outline for today, and it runs a little bit long, so we're going to have to buzz through, and hopefully we'll have time for questions at the end, but if we don't, I'm sorry, and it's my fault, and you can chase me and pelt me with garbage. Also, if you got that reference, I love you. Anybody? No? Old, old letterman. Um, They pelted us with rocks and garbage? No? Okay. Mm -mm. Um, That came on past my bedtime. I didn't have a bedtime. Yeah. Much like H.P. Lovecraft. Our lives are different. Which is true. We're going to talk about that. In a My second. life is like the opposite of H.P. Lovecraft. It's in terms of rules and structure and nutrition. Yeah. All of which, no joke, y'all. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah. So we will hop right in. Should we say the thing about hello and welcome to the podcast? Yes. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm going to take off my glasses because I'm a little bit blind and I can't read up close and I'm old and I don't want to admit it. Um, they have a thing called bifocals. Sh- I have not, two pair. I'm young and vibrant. It's not bifocals time. It's totally bifocals time. I'm hagging out. but I, I have don't special want to ones it. that are just for the computer. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to hop right in and start talking about the amazing, astonishing, weird, troubling, and we're going to talk about the difficult stuff. Um, there's some racism talk coming, so brace. Uh, so Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born on August 20th of 1890 to Winfield Scott Lovecraft and Susie Phillips Lovecraft. And when he was still a toddler in... Uh, 1893, things already started to get weird because his father, Winfield, began having very intense hallucinations. And he first evidenced this problem when he was on a business trip in Chicago. And he was in his hotel room and started crying out that a maid had insulted him. There was no maid there. And that his wife was being assaulted on the next floor up. But Susie had not traveled with him on this trip. There was no maid in the room. None of this was true. His wife was not there. Yeah. Uh, over the course of the next five years, Winfield Lovecraft's illness 
It waxed and waned, and the family lawyer, Albert E. Baker, assumed legal guardianship over him. He was placed in a mental institution, and he remained institutionalized until his death on July 19th of 1898. And there have been lots of theories about what was behind his hallucinations and his obvious mental illness. And a lot of doctors and historians believe that, uh, though his cause of death was listed as general paresis, that he really died of syphilis. And so Susie and Howard, now with no uh, husband or father, moved in with Susie's parents, Whipple and Roby Phillips, at 454 Angel Street in Providence, Rhode Island. And Howard had actually been born in this house. Uh, Susie had traveled there to her parents' home when she was due, even though she and Winfield at the time were living just south of Boston. It's so weird for me to think of him as Howard. Right. <laughs> I, as I did this research and started talking about him like to my husband or friends as I was discovering things, I'd be like, and then Howard did this. And they would be like, Who who's Howard? Talking about? I'm like, H.P. Lovecraft. They're like, he's H.P. Lovecraft. I'm like, he's Howard to me. So... <laughs> So the stress of losing her husband caused Susie's own mental health to also decline. She became really obsessed with her son as all that she had left in the world. And she was also not the only adult to be doting on him. His aunts and his grandparents also really indulged him and cherished him. Yes, Susie had two sisters and she's routinely described as sort of the dippy one, um, which is kind of sad and cute at the same time. Uh, but Susie's adoration of young Howard definitely crossed into really extreme territory. For example, she allowed him to eat whatever he wanted, which you should never do with a child. Um, so like if you ask a five-year-old what they want to eat, they're going to say cake and ice cream, which is exactly what he ate a great deal of as a child. So his nutrition really suffered. Uh, and he also had no set schedule for sleeping. So no bedtime, no wake-up time. He just kind of lived on his own little vampire hours. She also kept his hair. I like that you said vampire hours. <laughs> She also kept his hair in long curls until he was six, although he asked to have them cut off way before that. And then once she did cut off his hair, she would talk about how ugly it made him, which bothered him, understandably, for the rest of his life. Yeah, if you ever read accounts of neighbors, they'll all kind of discuss how Susie just constantly told them how ugly her child was, which is the such a terrible thing to do to a kid about um, his hair well even beyond that she would describe his face and be like oh it's long and pointy and blah, which is, Susie did it wrong she is not a model of parenthood uh, but this lack of structure and emotional stability in his life while I think you said stability what you said stability I said what stability should I not have it was instability well I said the lack of structure and oh stability. I'm totally you reading you wrong <laughs> This happens in the studio every time. And uh, normally it's the opposite. I got overconfident. Right? Yeah. Sometimes it's me that gets overconfident. It's good. That's good. Uh, so, yeah, he didn't have stability. He didn't have structure. But the good news, I suppose, is that it did not keep him from developing into a really incredibly bright child. He was sort of a sponge for information. He started reading, allegedly, around age three. Uh, and his grandparents' books... Their book collection was extensive. They had a really lovely library, and he basically burned through that as a kid. He also started writing as a, at a really young age. One of the first stories that he wrote he did when he was five or six, and it was around the same time that his grandmother died. 
He called it the little glass bottle. And in this story, a sea captain finds a distress note floating in a bottle, and he follows the map that's included in there to try to find the person who's in distress. When he gets there, he finds another bottle with another note, and that note says, quote, Dear Searcher, excuse me for the practical joke I have played on you, but it serves you right. And then the captain says that he would like to kick the prankster's head off. The end. <laughs> uh, so while we said we weren't going to talk about his writing, you know, as a five or six year old, that's some pretty impressive work, I suppose. Uh, he only attended school with other children for a year initially before his mother withdrew him. So he was also missing out on some pretty important formative social interaction with peers during this time. And the precise reason that he stayed out of school is not entirely clear. Uh, he stayed out for two years, and he was a very nervous child, and usually that anxiety that manifested in a number of physical ways is uh, referenced as the reason he was probably not going to school. Uh, but it is also just as possible that Susie was really struggling with this idea of separation and letting her son go off to school and be an entity outside of herself that did not depend on her, uh, particularly after her husband's breakdown and death. This was all, I mean, within a few years of, of her husband dying. And so, uh, in any case, he was, during that time, schooled at home and tutored uh, both by professional tutors and by his relatives. Uh, during these two years of homeschooling, he discovered Edgar Allan Poe. And he also learned about sex from medical textbooks, which made him decide it was completely unappealing. He did not like that idea at all. And he started writing longer and more developed pieces of prose. He went back to school in 1902 when he was 12. Yeah, that uh, that learning set about sex from medical texts really really messed with his head for the rest of his life. Uh, but uh, the next big thing that happened at this point was when he was 14, his grandfather, who he really adored, died suddenly. And his grandfather really is often credited as the person that introduced him to, like, stories of the, the supernatural and ghost stories and taught him not to be afraid of the dark. And so they had this relationship that then was suddenly severed. And the family, which was already struggling financially, then had to sell the large house uh, that they were living in. And for the first time in his life, as he remembered it, Howard, who moved into another much smaller home with his mother, then had to experience life without just vast expanses of square footage to explore and play in and with no servants to attend to him. He really dreaded going to high school, but once he got there, he actually kind of enjoyed it. He got along with most of his peers, and he did relatively well scholastically, despite having a constant struggle with getting to school on time, maybe because he didn't have a bedtime. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and his writing took another leap forward. His literary voice started to really develop. Yeah, in 1905, he wrote a piece called The Beast in the Cave, and this told the story of a man who is lost in a cave, and he is being tailed by some sort of creature. And this person eventually kills this ape-like beast that's following him, only to realize that it was actually something that had once been human. And then he wrote The Picture in 1907, which uh, is about this artist that paints this monstrous beast and then is later found killed, presumably, by the same beast that he had created on canvas. And then in 1908, he penned a... 2,700-word 20, uh, tale, which was titled The Alchemist, in which a French aristocrat inherited a cursed castle. And in each of these, Poe's influence is really, really evident. But Lovecraft's own literary voice really can be seen in its infancy. Lovecraft's schooling continued to be kind of inconsistent. He stayed out of high school for a year, 
uh, following the 1904-1905 school year, and that later was attributed to having a nervous breakdown. But that year is also when he started producing his first published writing, although it wasn't fiction yet. Yeah, first he had two letters published, one in the Providence Journal, in which he condemned uh, astrology, and another in Scientific American, calling for the cooperation of the astronomy community in the hunt for objects beyond Neptune. And then he began writing a series of astronomy articles for the Pawtuxet Valley Gleaner and for the Providence Evening Tribune. When he got back to high school, he didn't take a full course load. He took chemistry, algebra, and physics only, although he wound up dropping his algebra course after the first quarter. That was his last year of school. He never actually graduated, and although he later wrote as though he uh, as though he did, saying, quote, I suffered a nervous collapse immediately after graduating, which prevented altogether my attending college. And he would also later write that, quote, a cultivated family is the best school, and that he was unconcerned about those gaps in his formal education, but that sentiment was going to change as he aged. Next up, we will talk about uh, Lovecraft's poor health. But first, we will take a sponsor break. So the precise nature of Lovecraft's delicate health is uh, pretty unclear. So he complained a lot of a variety of physical maladies throughout his life, such as chronic indigestion and headaches and fatigue, in addition to his depression and nervousness. And the jumble of symptoms that he described really could be attributed to any number of problems. But no doctor ever gave a comprehensive diagnosis. Uh, so theories after the fact have mentioned everything from hypochondria to something like hyperinsulinism. He kept complaining of just a general weakness of health throughout his life, although he didn't usually go to the doctor to get medical attention for it, and it's possible that his poor health was at least partially psychological. Yeah, I mean, when you have a mother who's telling you you are delicate and infirm from day one of your life, you might start to believe that you are delicate and infirm. Uh, and he also never adopted a healthy diet, a consequence of that lack of nutritional guidance as a child, which almost certainly contributed to a general feeling of unwellness. He ate a lot of sweets, even into his adult life. Uh, but what's really kind of odd and surprising, maybe, is that he did not overindulge. He was super weight conscious. So even though he... Uh, he was 5'11", he tried to stay under 150 pounds, which is quite thin, because he thought that he would look more aristocratic if he stayed really slender. So he's going to have cake for dinner, but not much. Yeah, a small morsel is all he gets. Lovecraft's years immediately after high school are kind of a blank slate. He didn't do much between 1906 and 1914, except for taking a correspondence course in chemistry. Yeah, he was obviously into science, but he realized that while he loved particularly both chemistry and astronomy for their, quote, glamour and mystery and impressiveness, uh, he didn't really have the discipline that it was going to take to do the hard work that is required of scientists should they pursue that as a career. Uh, so he also toyed with illustration during this time, but he thought he was terrible and abandoned it. And according to his own recollections, he read a lot during this time. He wrote his own fiction. He was reclusive, not really leaving the house often or socializing with anyone other than his mother. And for her part, Susie was also growing increasingly eccentric uh, and really reclusive. And she encouraged this shut-in behavior. 
And he later wrote that this solitude that he chose as a young man stemmed in part from embarrassment and social anxiety. He said, quote, I shunned all human society, deeming myself too much of a failure in life to be seen socially by those who had known me as a youth and had foolishly expected great things of me. Eventually, though, by the time he was in his mid-twenties, Lovecraft started to grow out of this aimless loafing period of his life. And he once again became interested in the world outside of his house. He started writing astronomy articles again and joined the amateur journalism movement, which afforded him some social connections that his life had really been missing before this point. Yeah, he had had some friends as a kid, but what I always found interesting in researching him is that most of the people that talk about him as though he was a friend are actually adults in his circle. So he really was not getting uh, other other peers of his age. And the United Amateur Press Association, of which he became a member, had its own wild dramas. That could be a whole episode on its own because there was some crazy things going down. Uh, but Lovecraft, who had this odd habit of favoring 18th century vocabulary and grammar, uh, managed to become pretty well known and actually quite influential in this group. And he also learned at this time the hard lesson that criticism is a part of every writer's life. It's just a natural thing you have to accept. But while he claimed that it did not trouble him, uh, everyone that he knew said it privately affected him very deeply. Even the faintest critique of his work really would upset him. He also started corresponding a lot during this time, and he cultivated a wide range of friends that he knew primarily through letters. This was a practice that he would continue throughout his life. In many cases, he preferred this friendship through letters to having to actually deal with people face-to-face. And he also started using pseudonyms in his writing uh, for a really silly reason, in my opinion. Uh, it was in part so that he could have multiple pieces published in any given amateur journal at one time without being accused of hogging the space. <laughs> um, he just wanted people to publish everything he wrote, and he didn't want to get in trouble for it in a community that was largely about like sharing and helping one another. Uh, but these were not paying gigs. You should be very, very clear. Like this was this whole idea of amateur journalism at the time was built on people writing for their friends and other like-minded peers, but not really for the broader audience of the public. He would have fit right in on the internet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In 1915, he published a series of articles about planets and constellations in the Asheville, North Carolina paper, Gazette News. In each of these, he combined scientific facts with the mythology around the figures for which each astronomical object had been named. That's me. I'm so sorry. What a jerk. (laughs) If it helps, it's one of our colleagues from How Stuff Works. Uh, it, it happened right in the pause, and I was like, what's happening now? It's Matt Frederick texting me. <laughs> <laughs> so he took advantage of this platform to include quotes of verse from a, quote, recent writer. That recent writer was, in fact, himself, although he never said so in the text of the articles. Again, he, yeah, I love that he just will keep putting himself out there in new ways and quote himself as a different source. I think uh, uh, Walt Whitman used to write just glowing reviews of his own poetry. Yeah. <laughs> so this is not an unheard of practice. No. Uh, and he also, during this time, started self-publishing a periodical called The Conservative, and he started that in 1915. And he would put out this paper on and off for eight years, so he really was pretty committed to it. And he used it as a sort of pulpit from which he could preach against the evils of spelling reform, which he thought was terrible. Again, he was really into 18th century spelling and grammar. Uh, But he also extolled 
the superiority of the white race as he did, uh, published his paper. So there were some problems. Yeah. Lovecraft biographer L. Sprague de Camp makes the case that for somebody like Lovecraft, who was uh, felt himself to be a failure, who was not living up to his potential, it was really easy to buy into white supremacy. This was a belief that comforted him and made him feel superior. So we're going to loop back to this obviously racist worldview a little later. Yeah, he's a complex person. Uh, in an effort to gain some sort of independence from his mother, Lovecraft made this really odd move in 1917. He applied to enlist in the National Guard uh, after the U.S. declared war on Germany. So everything you've heard up to this point, I'm sure you, like me, are like, this is not for you, kid. Um, like, how he thought he was going to be able to endure this is an utter mystery. They but, make you get up early. if you're. They make you get up early. They make you not eat cake all the time. <laughs> and they make you do physical things, which he didn't like. Uh, so fortunately, a family friend who was serving as the local head of the draft board and was also a doctor talked him out of it. Uh, he really was like, you're, you're not going to hack this. Although Lovecraft later wrote, quote, it would have either killed or cured me. I think the odds are in favor of one of those two things. Uh, not long after that pretty bad idea, though, things started to pick up for Lovecraft as a writer. He started revising the work of some of the other members of the United Amateur Press Association and getting actually paid to do so. And this really remained his career for the rest of his life. So while he developed his own stories, ghost writing became his primary literary occupation. And in some ways, this was the absolute perfect fit for Howard Lovecraft. Uh, it made use, of course, of his literary talents. And he had a wide network of potential clients that he had cultivated, both through being parts of, part of these amateur press groups and through his correspondence with other writers. Uh, but it was also not lucrative for him, because unfortunately, he took way too much time with every single assignment. Uh, plus, he thought it was unbecoming to even discuss money. He had this whole weird gentleman complex and, like, his personal rules of life and you'd never talked about money which meant he was never ever collecting on uh, his invoices he would just let them go and never pursue them if somebody refused to pay him in 1919 howard's mother susie whose mental health had continued to decline was committed to the butler hospital for the insane and that was where her husband had died more than two decades earlier Lovecraft visited his mother often, although never inside the hospital, and she died two years after having been admitted in 1921 due to complications from a gallbladder surgery. Yeah, there's a lot of noise in history, uh, uh, historical pieces and biographies about him, about how he would not go in the hospital. His mother had to like come out to the hospital's garden, and they would visit there, but he refused to enter the building. Um, and after Susie's move to the hospital, so he is kind of out from under his mother's constant, um, you know, clucking at that point for the first time in his life, he actually started to venture out beyond Providence, thanks to conventions that were arranged by his fellow amateur journalists. So he first traveled to Boston in July of 1920. And initially he intended, this was like a week-long uh, event that, that they had put together, and he intended to commute back to Providence every night, which sounds crazy to me. Uh, but his friends eventually convinced him to just stay in the city, and they arranged places for him to stay. And he ended up really, really enjoying the trip. And he started to make regular trips to Boston to spend time with the friends that he had there. Yeah, they're not that far apart. I'm imagining this was happening on a train. 
yeah, I would or, imagine. But even so, I mean, you know, like I wouldn't we're want at a convention. To do like, it. Do you want to go like to Park City every night to yeah. back and forth? Like, no. So it's not a commute I would want to do. But right. like, they're they're not on opposite ends of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> everything in New England is close to everything else in New England. Uh, at a similar meeting. In February of 1921, Lovecraft spoke at a panel themed, quote, what have you done for amateur journalism and what has amateur journalism done for you? Reading from a paper that he had written on the topic, he said, quote, what I have done for amateur journalism is probably very slight, but I can at least declare that it represents my best efforts toward, uh, toward aid to the aspiring writer. What amateurdom has brought me is a circle of persons among I am not altogether an alien. What I have given amateur journalism is regrettably little. What amateur journalism has given me is life itself. Which is sort of charming. And apparently uh, the crowd erupted in thunderous applause. So they were, I think Howard was like their pet project in some ways. Like they saw that he was a little socially awkward and they really tried to like, you know, bring him along into their group. So they were very happy. It felt very um, validating to know that he felt he had found his life there. Oh, good. Because yeah. that sentiment is kind of like, I haven't done anything for y'all, but <laughs> you sure have given me a lot. No, I think it, it was, it was, you know, he was trying to be a gentleman about it. Uh, so when his mother died, which was of course devastating, his aunt Lillian uh, came to live in the house with him that he and his mother had been living in. So his other aunt, Annie, also stayed there from time to time. So when she wasn't traveling for work or vacation. So while he he had kind of gotten out from under the influence of his mother. He was then coddled by his aunts in place of Susie, and all three of them were living largely off of the small estate he had inherited. And this was not, we should be clear, a lot of money. The three of them weren't really bringing in an income of any sort at any sustaining rate, so they just chipped away at this relatively small inheritance. Yeah. And aside from the loss of his mother, this was really a massive period of change for Howard Lovecraft. Uh, for one, he had met a woman named Sonia Green at an amateur journalism conference. And the two of them struck up a correspondence, since that was his preferred mode of uh, communicating with people. Sonia was a milliner who lived in New York. She made hats, if you didn't know what a milliner does. Uh, and she was an immigrant from Ukraine who had moved to the U.S. when she was nine. She had been married briefly before, but she was on her own, and she was making really, really good money by the time that she met Howard. So she was a completely independent woman. The two of them started meeting for visits in Providence and in Boston. She met Howard's aunts, who liked her, and he wrote that it was, quote, despite a racial and social chasm. During this early stage of friendship that was turning into a courtship, uh, Lovecraft turned out a significant amount of work in the form of stories and prose poems, but he was still also working as a ghostwriter. And he also, during all of this, uh, seemed to have no clue that Sonia was interested in him. Uh, why he would think a woman would want to travel back and forth to visit him constantly without liking him is beyond me. But uh, when she actually kissed him for the first time, it was after he had, had written a piece that was based on an outline she had, had prepared, which was one of the things he did as a ghostwriter. Uh, she was so excited. and or I don't know if he had written it yet or if he had seen the outline and really loved it, but she was so excited that she kissed him spontaneously. And he he was completely flustered, and she kind of teased him and asked him what it was about. And he told her at that point that he had not been kissed since his infancy. So in addition to all that other weirdness, he was not really getting regular affection. So he really didn't know how to deal with human beings. He had a number of issues. <laughs> yes. 
And another big change that happened in his life at this time was his first paid writing uh, publication. A publisher named J.C. Henneberger had started a new magazine called Weird Tales, and Lovecraft's friend, uh, friends all wanted him to submit his work to it. And up until this point, he'd considered his own writing to be something that he produced for his friends, a hobby for a gentleman, but he finally gave in. Weird Tales bought Dagon first and then others, including The Hound and The Rats in the Walls. Yeah, he apparently didn't want to submit in the proper format. Like, he submitted things, and they wrote back and said, hey, you got to double spice, space this or something. And he's like, eh. So he probably could have made a lot more money right off the bat, but he was, didn't want to do it. Uh, and we're about to get into Lovecraft's marriage. But first, we're going to pause for another sponsor break, and then we'll jump in. So Lovecraft's relationship with Sonia had progressed. She was, according to her own account, the aggressor in this. It's unclear when the two of them started to talk about marriage uh, and him moving to New York, but they did apparently talk about it, and that's exactly what happened. On March 3rd, 1924, they were married in St. Paul's Chapel in New York's financial district, and that was chosen by Lovecraft because it dated back to 1776 and notable men of the revolutionary era had attended services there. Yeah, he wasn't particularly religious. He didn't have any interest in it, uh, but he just liked the history of it. And I will give you a little bit of a spoiler alert, because the reason we don't know when they started talking about marriage and really how their romance progressed is because it didn't last, and when it ended, Sonia burned all of her letters. So we we have a big gap where we don't know what happened between the two of them. Uh, and they were a really odd couple. Sonia was Howard's absolute opposite. So while he was this sort of, you know, odd, awkward, quiet, didn't love to talk to people, she was outgoing, she was super determined, she was confident, she was a businesswoman that was running her own show. Uh, and it has long been debated what exactly they saw in one another. But for a brief time, they really did seem genuinely happy together. Howard actually wrote to a friend right after they got married, quote, two are one, another bears the name Lovecraft, a new household is founded. He was really inspired by Sonia, and he claimed that she had prevented him from a plan to, quote, seek oblivion, i.e. commit suicide. So it didn't last. Sonia claimed that Howard wasn't a particularly loving husband. She had to initiate any romantic contact and found him adequate in that regard, but rather undemonstrative and having any feelings for her. He never used the word love in any way. Additional stress on the marriage came from a drop in income for Sonia. She was basically supporting Howard And he was only occasionally uh, selling stories basically when he felt like it. So instead of supporting just herself, she was supporting two people without a lot of contribution from the other one. Yeah, and when that's a person who says things like, I appreciate you and never says I love you, I would not enjoy that marriage at all. Everybody's got their own dynamic, but I can see why she uh, eventually kind of wearied of the well, situation. But then there's this bit that you're going to say next. Yeah, so here's the other problem. He had a lot of rants against immigrants and Jews, and she would remind him that he had, in fact, married an immigrant Jew himself. Uh <laughs> But what he would tell her in these moments was, you are now Mrs. H.P. Lovecraft. Like somehow in marrying him and taking his name, he had wiped away her ethnicity and she was now part of his his okay group. What a jerk. <laughs> it's pretty jerky. Like that plus never saying I love you plus... like Plus all the other things that we're going to talk about in a little bit. That's the problem. I see why she left. 
So before she left, though, they first downgraded to a smaller apartment. She took a, took a job in Cincinnati, and he didn't follow her when she did that. Um, when she she left for that at the end of 1924, this was the first of several jobs that would keep the two of them separated. He was no longer enthralled by living in New York and was actually starting to hate it. Which I I can get how that might happen, uh, but uh, he ended up returning to Rhode Island, rapturous once again to be in Providence. And before long, the marriage was basically over. Yeah, he uh, while they were living in New York, they had they had always been living in Brooklyn, but they downgraded to what he considered to be a gross immigrant neighborhood. Um, and that really, in some ways, some historians will say fueled a lot of his sort of next phase of writing and kind of the weirder, more disturbing stuff. And also because there was a point at which, while he was living in the apartment by himself, the apartment was completely robbed and all he was left with was the, were the clothes on his back. And so he just was like, this place sucks. All of these immigrants suck. I hate it here. Everything is horrible. I am going back to white, wealthy Providence, Rhode Island. So he's a charmer, basically, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, the next phase of his life, from 1926 to 1937, would actually, though, produce his most famous works, probably the ones we all fell in love with if we're Lovecraft fans, including Call of Cthulhu in 1928, which Weird Tales paid a whopping $165 for, uh, which is not small potatoes at that point. And as he started to develop this impressive body of stories, uh, which were interconnected in both obvious and subtle ways, he was really, truly hitting his stride in terms of creativity. He also made some really interesting acquaintances in the 1930s, including a friendship that started with a letter from a fan in 1931. When Howard went to visit this fan, a man named Robert Barlow, in 1934, he discovered that Barlow was only 16. But in spite of the oddness of all that... Uh, Lovecraft stayed with Barlow and his mother for seven weeks that summer, and the two of them became friends. Yeah, he would return on subsequent summers. And as Lovecraft's creative star really rose in the 1930s, and he actually started to, to garner this following of fans from his weird fiction, his financial star was completely sputtering out. So having never managed to make any sort of consistent income, his uh, capital, his in what he had been willed by his, his father and then his mother, was dwindling really quickly. And his ghostwriting and his editing work barely enabled him to scrape by. And then, rather abruptly, it all came to an end. Lovecraft died of intestinal cancer in March of 1937 at the age of 46. The cancer had already spread throughout his body by the time he saw a doctor, and only four friends attended his funeral. Yeah, there's basically a pretty um, consistent opinion among historians and biographers that if he had not been foolish and waited so long, he possibly could have, have really been treated for his cancer and potentially survived much longer, but because he didn't want to go to doctors, he missed out on that opportunity. Uh, and it wasn't until Lovecraft's friends, August Derleth and Donald Wandre, began publishing collected Lovecraft stories in book form in the 1940s that Lovecraft gained this much wider audience outside of all of his little niche followers and his friends. And his work quickly became famous in ways he could never have imagined. So it's a safe bet that seeing things like Cthulhu plushies and his image on T-shirts uh, and you know his work being adapted into films and Guillermo del Toro working forever on Mountains of Madness which better come out at some point, um, it would blow his mind. I mean, there's no way he could have conceived of this level of popularity. 
So there was a great deal of affectation to H.P. Lovecraft's personality. When his father died, uh, Howard had inherited the somber wardrobe, and he wore it as an adult, even though the clothes at that point were really passe. He only gave up wearing his father's old clothes when they became threadbare to the point of just being unwearable. And growing up in a world of adults more than children with few rules and this endless supply of reading material, you really start to see that Lovecraft sort of developed this patchwork of ideas about the world that really stayed with him long past his formative years. Like, he loved the classical world. He became an avid Anglophile, even taking up the side of the British in any discussions of the U.S. Revolutionary War. He often lobbied for New England to rejoin the British Empire. (laughs) I don't, I don't think the New England would go for that. No. Uh, and he would sing God Save the King rather than the Star Spangled Banner, which I'm sure annoyed no one. <laughs> <laughs> he adopted 18th century colloquialisms in his speech and in his writing, and he also had this deep, unending love of Republican Rome. And after reading by, uh, a book by a proponent of temperance named John B. Gow as a child, Howard swore he would never, ever drink, and he actually did remain sober his entire life. But this is one of several areas where the assertion of his pers- the assertions in his personal writing really don't always line up with reality. And we're going to talk about a lot more of that in a moment. But while he claimed that he was, quote, nauseated by even the distant stink of any alcoholic liquor, it was known. There are records of him attending parties where alcohol was certainly So there's a disparity between what he claimed was his belief system and his sort of life rules and how he actually lived in many ways. There's also, as most people know, and as we mentioned a little bit ago, some really unpleasant racism in Lovecraft's life story. Even his beloved cat that he had as a child, he named a racist slur. And the most problematic aspect of his life is that the racism that colored most of his thinking about it. Yeah, so there were times in his life, uh, most of his life until quite near the end, he thought anyone who was not white was inferior and he used language to describe anyone who was not a white dude as uh, along the lines of, quote, twisted rat-like vermin from the ghetto uh, and mongrels uh, when he would describe them. But this is another area that is really contradictory in his life. For example... He spoke extremely openly of having disdain for Jews, even when writing such criticisms as, quote, but the very spirituality which gives elevation to the Semitic mind particularly unfits it for the consideration of tastes and trends in Aryan thoughts and writings. But in spite of that, he married a Jewish woman. But then she wasn't a Jewish immigrant anymore when she became Mrs. Lovecraft? I don't know, question mark. Uh... This really horrified me when I found it, so I'm sorry that I'm sharing it, but it's really, it's important. Uh, when one of his friends in New York, uh, when he had lived there, hinted that he had been romantically linked with a black woman, Lovecraft was completely appalled and disgusted, and he said that any white man who did so should have the word Negro branded on his forehead. But yeah, not so cool. No. But in his dealings with actual individual human members and the many ethnicities uh, and religions that he spoke ill of, they described him as a man who was kind, generous, and unselfish, which really contradicts all the vile things he would say and write all the time. And to explain this incongruity, Sonia Green would later say, in something that we couldn't stop laughing about at dinner last night, I think he hated humanity in the abstract. (laughs) 
Yeah, he could write this horrible stuff, but when actually confronted with a human, he did try to be a gentleman. It was like, oh, you're interesting and nice. So he just couldn't... There was a big disparity. Uh, and even uh, in 1933, as he called Hitler a clown, he also said that he sort of liked him and understood his position. Uh, but he was also at the same time, this is what was mind-blowing to me, like I don't know how he did the math in his head to reconcile all of this. He was a huge supporter of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal, and he became a Democrat at the same time. And he said that socialism was inevitable, but also wrote, quote, I am an unreserved fascist. Um, This was all in the same year. It was a very busy year for him. And it really seemed, it starts to seem as though maybe he really liked to rile people up while simultaneously playing this role of the fragile, kind gentleman. So it's, it's one of those things that's very hard to kind of knit together in one's head like how these two sort of disparate concepts existed in one person i will note that in terms of racial justice like the political parties that exist today have been through multiple shifts yeah so like but at the same time yeah this doesn't make any sense no his stuff was very he was a wacky wacky gent but in his last few years he softened considerably which is also sometimes not what one would expect Politically, he had started out as a youth being ultra-conservative, but over time he shifted his thinking to a point that he said he became a socialist liberal. And he, of course, changed his tune on both Hitler and fascism in that same year. So by late 1933, uh, he was completely against them and continued to write against them vehemently for the the remainder of his life, which was only three years. Uh, His stance against Hitler may have played a part in his turnaround on Judaism as well, Because shortly before he died, he actually attended a New Deal rally, and he wrote glowing praise of the rabbi Stephen Wise, who was that event's main speaker. At the very end of his life, it appeared uh, that Lovecraft had some very real regrets about his very idle youth that he spent being coddled and encouraged to be a gentleman, but not getting any practical education. He wrote in a letter to a friend in 1936, quote, if I were young again... I would take some clerical training fitting me for more lucrative work. It's my mistake that I never thought about money when I was young. And I just wanted to end on a slightly positive note, uh, since we have a rule about nothing too sad when we do these live shows. <laughs> no bummer live uh, show So rule. for as problematic uh, as he was, all of those really problematic personality traits, what really is perhaps most surprising about... Uh, H.P. Lovecraft is how much people that actually met him and spent time with him seem to just genuinely like him. Uh, and fellow writer George Julian Hutain said of Lovecraft, quote, somehow I had never been ambitious to meet Lovecraft. I had an impression that he was very heavy and ponderous. He is apparently all those things I detest. Yet from the minute I met him, I liked H.P. Lovecraft immensely. So that's I find that. that so hard to imagine, I given know. like all the things we just described about <laughs> his. But that's kind of part of the appeal, right? The complexity of humanity is what makes it fascinating and sort of beautiful. So thank you so, so much to Salt Lake Comic Con for inviting us, and particularly to Ryan Call, who wrangled all of the details of our appearance there. And is just a, a generally fabulous chap. Yeah, I can't stress enough. That is uh, one of my favorite uh cons to go to. Yeah. And they're just they're really well organized. Yeah. And it's it's an enjoyable event all the time. Salt Lake City, as we've said before, is beautiful and had a good time both times at this point. You've gone three times, I've gone twice. 
Yeah, and I had uh, a friend meet me out there from L.A. who I don't get to see enough. And she was saying, like, she's been to other cons sometimes with me, even though it's not really always her jam. But she was really like, this is a really low stress because everything is really well organized and it's nice and close together. And there's not she was like, this is one of the few cons where I never felt frantic. I agree. Oh, that's like perfect. It's great. Salt Lake Comic Con is also going to be releasing some of the other panels from the show as podcasts. So we'll be sure to include the links to that podcast feed in our show notes so that you can listen to them uh, if you're interested. And then ones that uh, Holly and I are on, we will be sure to tell folks about on our social media. Yeah. Uh, and now, because we are still in the month of March, I think this is our last episode that will appear in March, we are still in Tripod Month Yeah, uh, for people to try out new podcasts. So uh, because we're the last one and I still have I have more than one to go, I'm recommending two this time. Very different. Uh, the first one is called Return Home, and it is a, um, you know, fictional narrative podcast that is a little bit creepy, a little bit funny. Um it's got a really interesting cast. Sometimes it's campy, sometimes it's spooky, but it's basically the story of a person who returns to their hometown to realize that that place is got some unique characteristics and, and it plays out from there. And I have really, really enjoyed following it. It's gone several short seasons now and it's super fun. Uh, the other one that I love, love, love is called It Came From the Depths of Netflix, which is a, um, a bad movie review podcast, but it's, really unique in that most podcasts like that are just kind of about ripping on the movie. But this is interesting because they break down the entire uh, premise and the plot of any given movie that they have watched. And then they will talk about what could have improved that movie and made, you know, both the narrative and the actual production better, uh, whether or not they would suggest it to friends for a fun viewing, etc. And it's just, it's got kind of a fun, positive spin. I highly recommend it. So those two podcasts, again, are Return Home. And it came from the depths of Netflix. And we bet that you have podcasts that you love or maybe you don't love, but you think they would be perfect for a person that you know that maybe hasn't gotten in on podcasts yet. You should recommend it to them, like open people up to the world of information and entertainment that's available to them through podcasting. And you can do that. Uh, you can spread your word on social media using the hashtag tripod. That's try T-R-Y-P-O-D. So try out a podcast. Uh, and yeah, share it that way. Everybody can enjoy hearing your recommendations. I also have listener mail. This listener mail is from our uh, listener, David, who has a couple of connections to previous topics that we talked about. Uh, And he says, hi, Holly and Tracy. I've been listening to the podcast for a couple of years, and it's become one of my staples for my daily commute to work. Being a history geek, I find them informative and fascinating, but I never thought I would find personal connections to the subjects you talk about on the show until recently. The first was your podcast on Ira Aldridge. I work at the Folger Shakespeare Library, where among the many items in our vast collection, we have a few artifacts on Mr. Aldridge. One is a playbill dated 1833, announcing his first appearance at Covent Garden in the role of Othello. Last year, we put it on public display as part of an exhibition at the Folger on Shakespeare in America. This particular playbill has an etching of Ira Aldridge in costume on it. I should note that the term playbill refers to a poster-like item and not the ubiquitous playbill programs that you get in theaters today. He sent us a link to a digitized version of it, 
And he says, we also have a manuscript of lines from Act 3, Scene 3 of Othello, written by Idra Aldrich himself. That manuscript has unfortunately not yet been digitized, but we have other items as well. If you want to explore our collection, check out our website, which is folger.edu. And then he says, but the episode that struck me the most was the recent one about the Atlanta temple bombing. My grandfather was one of the FBI agents who investigated the bombing and arrested the perpetrator. It's one of the many stories he had about his FBI days, but the one my mother thinks affected him the most. Not long after the bombing, he took her and her siblings to the temple so they would always remember the destruction that prejudice could produce. After his passing in 1999, in his eulogy, my uncle recounted a a moment when my grandfather gave him a picture of the bombing's aftermath and told him it was, quote, a symbol of stupidity. When I mentioned the podcast to my mother, she said my grandfather never got over being upset that the perpetrator was acquitted. My uncle suggested I read one of the books that Holly used for research titled The Temple Bombing by Melissa Green for a good history on the bombing. My grandfather is sadly not mentioned in the book, likely due to Hoover's dislike of the press. But knowing my grandfather, he was likely more than fine with the anonymity. From what my mother tells me, agents were instructed never to talk to the press during Hoover's reign. A reporter from the AJC, which I believe at the time was called the Atlanta Constitution. Yeah, it used to be two papers, the Atlanta Constitution and the Atlanta Journal, and then they merged into the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Uh, found my grandfather and tried to interview him after the bombing. As the family story goes, my grandfather replied with no comment, which when those exact words were published in the article, Hoover became angry that one of his agents was identified and he transferred him to Macon, Georgia. It wasn't the brightest spot in our family history, but it was a big event nonetheless. Your episode on the bombing brought back a lot of memories of my grandfather, for which I must express my gratitude. Uh, David, thank you so much for sharing that with us. It's always Really amazing to hear people's personal connections to any of the stories that we talk about. Uh, and it's quite moving, as well as the cool Ira Aldrich stuff. Uh, I encourage everyone, go check out Folger.edu and look at their archives, because some of the stuff they have online is really amazing. I poked around there for a bit and lost some time, but not in a bad way. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. That means on Twitter at Missed in History, on Instagram at Missed in History, Facebook.com slash Missed in History. You get the idea. Almost any uh, social platform you can go to, if you look for Missed in History, you will find us. You can also find us at our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, as well as our parent site, HowStuffWorks, where you can type in almost any topic in the search bar and you're going to come up with a lot of really fun information to explore. So please come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 